Let's pray. Oh, let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we have just asked you in your kindness that you would break the chains, the chains of sin and of lies that keep us in darkness and uh, leave us confused and insecure. Uh, Father, we pray that by the power of your truth, you would break those chains and you would set us free, confident in Jesus, full of faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I would like to start off by asking you a question. And um, the questions that we have on the screen. Um, here we go. How sure are you? How sure are you? How sure are you that Christianity is true? How sure are you that Christianity is true? And why? Um, on, your, uh, on your little handout, you should have uh, a box. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, oh, here we are. There's a, a box. And in that box, I'm wondering if you could write a number, 1 to 10, about how sure you are that Christianity is true. So if you're absolutely 100% convinced there is nothing in the universe more true and more sure than Christianity, give yourself a 10. And, and if you're absolutely convinced there's nothing less true than Christianity, nothing could be more further from the truth, put 1. If, you, if it's like toss a coin, you don't know, maybe 5 or 6, something like that. Now, what would you say? How sure are you that Christianity is true? And as you think about that, I'd like to um, tell you about a couple of people that I know. Uh, here's the uh, first one. That's my great Auntie Peggy. There's Auntie Peggy sitting there with her, her cat, Sam, in London. I like to visit her on Saturdays when I'm studying in terms. She actually gives me food. Um, and also I get to share the gospel with her. And, and I, think, I think, talking to Auntie Peggy, um, she thinks that religious truth doesn't really matter. Um, so, I mean, she would say she's a Christian, or certainly... Church of England, definitely Church of England. Um, and she's, she's been to church for decades. She can't, unfortunately now, because her legs aren't, aren't very good, she can't walk down the stairs um, and get out. But she, she's definitely a Church of England person. She likes to pray. She says, actually, Christianity is very comforting for her. So to think that God is there, and that you can talk to him about your problems, that you can trust him to look after your family when you can't go and see them. Uh, yeah, she finds Christianity a great comfort, but she doesn't really understand um, when, I, when I say I think that everyone needs to believe in Jesus. She, she, she thinks that's a bit strange. Um, surely people should just choose whatever's helpful for them. It's not really a question of true or false. It's, it's more what works with religious things. Um, it's almost arrogant, isn't it, to go and tell people that what they believe is wrong and what you believe is right. Religious truth, it doesn't really matter that much. I think that's where she'd be coming from. Um, let me tell you about another friend of mine, uh, someone slightly different, so I'm pegging. Um, there he is, Hugo. Uh, Hugo, I studied physics with him, he's a total genius. He's in Scotland there, he's celebrating after having finished uh, one of his exams. Um, and uh, what well, he would say, even stronger, I think, than Auntie Peggy, he'd say, no, religious truth doesn't even exist. Doesn't exist. The only thing that exists is science and things that you can prove by you know, experiments and, and logic and induction. But anything religious, you know, that's just in our minds. It's just it's just speculation. You can't prove it. And and what's in my mind is obviously different to what's in your mind. In your mind, we've all got different ideas. None of it's actually true. It's just opinion. Yeah, the world says you get the world would be a much better place if we just grew up and recognise that there is no real such thing 
as religious truth. Think of all the wars that will be stopped if people just admitted there's no religious truth. Yeah. Um, I think that's um, a short step away from a position that's very common in Europe. Um, postmodernism. Do you have postmodernism down here? Yeah. Um, there was actually, yeah, there was a, a conference held in April. Uh, there were a thousand uh, Christian pastors who met together, um, Asian pastors, and they were discussing the question, what is the greatest challenge to the Asian church in the 21st century? What's the greatest challenge to the Asian church in the 21st century? And the answer that they came up with was postmodernism. And so postmodernism, it fits so, so nicely into many Asian philosophies. It's like the perfect storm. And, and it leads people to doubt everything, to doubt even the Bible. And of course, if Christians doubt the Bible, then there's no way we can stand against any other attack on us, any persecution, whatever, if we're not confident in the Bible. And postmodernism says, of course you can't be confident. It's all opinion. Everything's opinion. And anyway, I wonder if you've written in your number uh, how confident you are, how sure you are that Christianity is true. Um, more important, though, uh, than what you think is what Jesus thinks. That's why we're here. Let's find out what does the Bible say about all this. So, um, if you've got your Bible, um, can you turn to John chapter 5? That's uh, where we're continuing today, uh, following on from last week's passage. Um, page 1074. Um, and you may remember, if you were here last week, you may remember the context. This is the context. Jesus is on trial. Jesus is on trial. He, uh, he healed somebody. Do you remember this paralyzed man? On the Sabbath. And the Jews saw this and they were really, really upset with Jesus that he'd done this on the Sabbath. Um, and, uh, and, and Jesus said this to them. Have a look at verses 17 and 18. Uh, John 5, 17 to 18. Um, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus makes a religious claim, and the Jews interpret that as a truth claim, something that can, can lead you to the death sentence, and that's what the Old Testament says. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And here's this man, I think, just a man, and he's claiming to be God. Isn't that an insult to God? Surely, surely he's blaspheming, maybe he should be put to death for that. Now I wonder, what would Jesus have said to them if he were postmodern? Who thought, what would a postmodern Jesus say? And I was thinking about this, I think he would say something like this. Jews, please, just calm down. Let's be more tolerant, be more understanding. When I say that I'm the Son of God, yeah, it's true. It's only true for me. It's true for me. It doesn't have to be true for you. I'm not saying anything about you. It's just a personal preference. Don't get all worked up about it. You can believe what you want. Let me believe what I want. Ignore your friends. Don't think that religious truth is a normal kind of truth, that you can have law courts over and all that. No, no, no. It's just subjective. Grow up. Enter the personal make. Is that what Jesus said? Some of the rest of the He doesn't say that. What does Jesus say? Um, I have a look. This is interesting. I'm going to look at verse 24. What does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Did you notice in those, in those words, Jesus is totally anti-postmodern because he affirms truth. It's truly, truly, he says at the start, this is the truest truth that there can be. It's absolutely rock-solid truth. He's stating his entire integrity on this, this fact being true. And not only is religious truth true truth, but it, is, it can be used as legal truth in a legal case. Do you notice the word that Jesus uses and which makes us think of court cases and things? The word judgment. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So Jesus agrees, religious truth can be used as legal truth. Um, but there's a twist. Because anyone thinks it's Jesus that's on trial, but that's not what Jesus thinks. Jesus says it's us that's on trial. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, but he who is not coming to judgment that has passed from death to life. It's, it's we who are on trial here. So for Jesus, religious truth does exist. And religious truth does matter. I mean, if, if this is this is right, there must be nothing that matters more. What can matter more than escaping judgment and having eternal life? So that brings us on to today's passage, and we're in the court case. And in a court case, uh, you always have witnesses, don't you? And so first of all, we're, we're going to be summoning some witnesses who can stand up for what Jesus is going to say. Um, and Jesus, um, he starts up though by telling us that there's one witness he's not going to call. Have a look um, at uh, verses 31 and 32 and see if you can tell me who is it that Jesus is not going to call. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Okay, so who is it that Jesus is not going to call to testify in this court trial case? Himself. Genius, thank you, Joseph. And himself, he's not going to call himself. Now, why is that? Um, well, it's because in a legal context, you don't want to convict anybody just on what they say. You need to have some external evidence and to corroborate it. That's, that's what the Old Testament says. That only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Um, otherwise, you can get a miscarriage of justice very easily. I heard uh, last week of a missionary in Pakistan. He went to the airport, and at the airport, the missionary was arrested. And he was arrested in this way. There was a man standing in front of him in the queue. And they discovered that this man had drugs. So they said, where do you get these drugs? And he turned around and he sees this westerner. He said, he gave them to me. And so they grabbed the missionary and they took him and they imprisoned him. Just on testimony of that one man. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. You can't do that. You need to have external witnesses. And, um, and Jesus says... Actually, that's exactly what he can provide. Now, of course, there are some cases when Jesus does say to his disciples, believe it, because I say so. Now, John's Gospel, there are places where he does that. But that's a different context to a legal court case. If his disciple, so his students, of course, you believe because that's what your, uh, yeah, that's what your master says. 
disciples. But if you're in a legal case, you don't already accept the authority of, of Jesus. You need some external evidence. Yeah? And I think this is something which really sets Christianity apart from, from probably every other religion. Um, for example, um, Buddhism. Buddhism's a big religion over here in, in Malaysia. Um, I've, I've studied a little bit about Buddhism in my course over in London. And uh, the history of Buddhism, as I understand it, goes something like this. There's, uh, this prince, Gautama, uh, lives in his palace, has a great life, no hardships or suffering, perfect life. Until one day, he leaves the palace and goes out and he sees suffering for the first time. He sees an old man and he sees a corpse. And he sees someone who is ill and can't stand up. And, and he says, I can't cope with this. Well, there is suffering in the world. What do we make of this? What is the meaning of life? And so he sits under his tree in the lotus position for 40 days and he meditates. And after he meditates, eventually, 40 days later, he says, Aha! I've become enlightened. I can see all things as they really are. I know the secrets of the meaning of life. And if one of his friends had asked him, Well, how, how can I know that you're enlightened? What would he have said? Well, you would have said, well, you can't know unless you're enlightened yourself. Yeah? I know I'm enlightened, so just trust me on this. I'm enlightened, yeah? Yeah, maybe one day you can be enlightened too, but you can't prove it. The Buddha never claims external testimony. He just says, you believe because I say so. And if you're a Buddhist, then of course you would. You believe because Buddha says so. But if you're not, if you're trying to establish in the first place whether or not you can trust him, well, that kind of argument isn't going to stand up in court, is it? It's not strong enough. You need external verification. Now, there's another really important religion, I think, to understand in Malaysia. Um, uh, I'm sure you can guess what it is. It begins with N. Here it is. It's that Mormonism. Yeah? Mormonism. Really important to understand Mormonism if you're in Malaysia trying to share the gospel. Um, actually, let me tell you a bit about the history of Mormonism. So this man here, anyone know who he is? Joseph Smith, yeah. So, Joseph Smith, he says that one day an angel appeared to him, and, uh, or in a vision, I think it was, or something, and the angel told him where he could go to dig down and find these golden plates. So he followed the angel's instructions, middle of the night, digs down, finds the golden plates, and uh, on them is written this strange language, which, which he, he can't understand, but the angel gives him the ability to translate these golden plates. So there he is, hard at work, translating the golden plates. And, uh, and when he's finished translating all, he writes it all down in the Book of Mormon so that everyone can know what it says. And then the angel comes and takes the golden plates away. And then he presents the Book of Mormon. Yeah? And he says to everyone, yeah, I, the Bible is great. I, I think the prophets are fantastic. But I am the last prophet. Yeah? This is my last revelation. So, you really follow the Book of Mormon. Don't just stick with the old-fashioned model. Come out with a new model. Yeah? Um, now, I don't, personally, I, I didn't find that very convincing. Um, I mean, maybe some people here would. Um, I hope not. Um, but you can't really be sure, just on the basis of what he says, that the angel really appeared, because no one saw it. Or, and the golden plates, so no one saw them either. Um, so it's possible, theoretically, it could be possible that he just made it all up. Theoretically. Yeah. Okay. So, Jesus is totally different from that. Because he says, okay, 
of a legal case. I don't want you to just trust my word for it. I want to give some witnesses. And I'm going to summon um, a few witnesses to testify to the truth. And uh, the first witness I will call is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Um, let me read verses 33 to 35. And as I do, see if you can work out why it is that Jesus chooses John as his first witness. You sensed John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So why? Why do you think Jesus summoned John as his first witness? There's a clue there in verse 33. You sent to John. He's reminding them, yeah, you've actually taken John seriously in the past. You've sent a deputation to John to find out who he is, because you accept that he certainly has some authority from God. And verse 35, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Yeah, you Jews have already accepted that he's telling truth. Yeah? So let me call a witness who you've already accepted and see what he says about me. And uh, uh, let's go back to John chapter 1 to remind ourselves what John's testimony was. John 1, 19 to 23. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then have a look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the end of that paragraph, verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, they came, they saw, and he pointed. See, there's John pointing. Pointing to Jesus. That's why John the Baptist came, just the point. And his testimony is absolutely clear. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Jews that are accusing Jesus don't have a leg to stand on because they've already accepted that John tells the truth. Okay, well, maybe, maybe some of those Jews want to be a bit sceptical. Maybe they would say, okay, perhaps we were wrong to trust John the Baptist. Or maybe he's just mistaken or confused here. Um, well, go back to John 5. What does Jesus say in verse 34? Jesus says, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. And Jesus is saying, I'm not building my entire case just on the witness of John the Baptist. I'm only calling on him because I know you trust him and I want you to be saved. And he is speaking the truth about me. And, and this is a, an important theme that we see in John's Gospel, that Jesus 
does not despise the little witnesses. Um, Come back again to John chapter 4. You see an example of it there. Remember um, when Jesus met that Samaritan woman by the well, and uh, and he said to her, you're right to say you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. And she goes, wow, you know everything about me. Maybe you're the Messiah. And she believes. And then she runs back to this, the village of, in Samaria. And and what happens? And I have a look at verses 39, chapter 4, verses 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. What does that show us about faith? I think it shows us that faith can be a journey. And there can be little stepping stones on the way as we grow up and mature and come later to full certainty and a mature confidence in Jesus. And that's how it was for me. And so how did I become a Christian? And it's because of my parents and what they told me when I was young. There was a, a time, maybe I was six or seven, I don't remember how old exactly, I worked out that, well, every day, I'm getting older. And one day, I'll be a hundred years old. And then I'll die. Because I thought everyone dies at a hundred years old. Pretty fair. Um, and I thought, wow, this is so sad. What is, what is life for? Like, I suppose it was like an existential crisis or something. Like, What's, what's, the, what's the point of anything? I can't, I can't save myself. I'm going to die. Everything's going to be forgotten, lost, wasted. What's the point of that? I, I was crying about that in my bed one night. And my parents came. Said, Chris, why are you crying? And I told them, oh, I, one day I'm going to die. Everyone dies. There's no way to stop it happening. And they said, oh, Chris, don't, you don't need to be scared of dying. Because Jesus says, if you just trust him, then when you die, he will take you to be with him forever. Not because of the good works that you've done, but because he died on the cross for you. And by God's grace, I believed. I believed in Jesus just because of that witness from my parents. That little stepping stone on the way. And uh, I think that, that's uh, an important lesson for, for any here who have small children. Uh, any parents or those who are going to be parents, one day, you will be that chance to be that stepping stone of faith for them. And it will be your, your responsibility before God to bring them up in a way that, yeah, they will believe in Jesus from you, and then later they'll be ready to stand on the basis of other evidence. But when they young, from what you teach them, that's what, that's what God wants us to do. And of course, that's not what the devil wants us to do. The devil wants parents to have nothing to do with teaching their children about Jesus. Um, he's been hard at work in England to try and stop this kind of thing. Have a look at these posters that were plastered all around England a couple of years ago. Uh, please don't label me. Let me grow up and choose for myself. And so these are posters put out by the atheists who say we shouldn't, as parents, use our authority to, to tell children what to believe. That's, that's an abuse of power. No, let them grow up and make a mature decision for themselves. Yeah? 
It's quite funny, actually. God's got a sense of humour. And let me tell you then about a newspaper report that came out a couple of months after these pictures were plastered everywhere uh, from the Sunday Times. The two children chosen to front Richard Dawkins' latest assault on God could not look more free of the misery he associates with religious baggage, with the slogan, Please don't label me. Let me grow up and choose for myself. The youngsters, with broad grins, seem to be the perfect advertisement for the new atheism being promoted by Professor Dawkins and the British Humanist Association. Except that they are about as far from atheism as it is possible to be. The Times can reveal that Charlotte, 8, and Ollie, 7, are from one of the country's most devout Christian families. Their father, Brad Mason, is something of a celebrity within evangelical circles as a drummer for the popular Christian musician Noel Richards. Now a web designer and photographer, Mr. Mason has been supplementing his income for years by providing photographs to agencies who sell them on to newspapers and advertising campaigns. He said, It is quite funny, because obviously they were searching for images of children that looked happy and free. They happened to choose children who are Christians. It is ironic. The humanists obviously did not know the background of these children. He said that the children's Christianity had shone through. Obviously, there is something in their faces which is different. So they judged that they were happy and free without knowing that they are Christians. <laughs> That's quite a compliment. I reckon it shows that we brought up our children in a good way and that they are happy. Now, of course, when these, when these children grow up, they're going to, to find out that sometimes their parents might make mistakes, might be wrong about things. And so for a time, this will be enough for them. But at some point, they'll need better reasons, stronger reasons, for believing in Jesus. And actually, that's exactly what Jesus goes on to give us. And at verse 36, he summons the second witness, Jesus' work. John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is talking there about the miracles that he's been doing. This is a great witness to call to the Jews. They can't deny that he's done miracles. Why? Well, because the whole reason he's on trial it's because they've seen him heal this paralyzed man, and they're now criticizing him for healing on the Sabbath. So they can't deny that he's done works. And Jesus said these works are signs, right? just like John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, the, the miracles, they're signs that point to who Jesus is. Um, so um, we go back to chapter 2. Um, do you remember when Jesus turned water into wine? And, uh, I mean, it wasn't just because Jesus wanted to be kind, to help that groom out of a difficult situation. It was, but more than that, chapter 2, verse 11, this is how it's summarized. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It caused the miracle a sign. Also, in chapter 4, Jesus heals an official son. Have a look at the last verse of that chapter. Chapter 4. Verse 54, how is that summarized? It's the same word. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. 
And, and Jesus tells us in chapter 5, yeah, the signs are pointing to who I am. I am the Son of God. That's how I can do these great miracles. I suppose um, if the Jews who were uh, putting Jesus on trial here wanted to, to doubt that, they, they, might, I mean, they can't doubt the fact that Jesus done, done the miracles, because it's the day in front of them. But they could say, okay, I can see you've done miracles. It doesn't make you the Son of God, does it? Loads of people throughout the Bible have done miracles. Even false prophets can do miracles. So how do we know that your miracles make you the Son of God? Now, very interesting. Um, I was talking to a, a Jewish man in Oxford a couple of years ago, and, and he told me that he had become a Christian. That's very interesting. I never met a Jewish Christian before. And I asked him what, what persuaded him that Christianity was true. And he said it was this, Jesus' works. In particular... It was his resurrection. Because he said, all through, all through my life I was taught that, that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Maybe he's a prophet, I don't know what he is. But I was thinking, actually, the resurrection proves that he's the Son of God. Because imagine Jesus wasn't. Imagine Jesus was lying and claiming to be the Son of God. Just a prophet. But if he was lying about that, do you think that God would really raise him from the dead? If it was a lie? Of course not. If God raises him from the dead, that's vindicating everything Jesus has said. So, of course, Jesus must be the Son of God, otherwise God wouldn't raise him. Yeah? And so, he became a Christian on the basis of Jesus' words. And, again, for me, in, in my own Christian faith, that's been the next step. So, when I was a teenager, I was reading a book uh, which went into the historical evidence for the resurrection. And I was amazed. It was so clear. They, they put up different arguments that people have advanced against the, the resurrection, but none of them stand up. The only possible explanation for what happened is that Jesus really did rise from the dead, a fact of history. And that's been really, really helpful for me. And um, Whenever I have thought, is this really true? And I'm doing all this Christian stuff, is this really true? I mean, could I go and just live my life as a non-Christian? But I always come back to the resurrection and remind myself, no, it's... This is actually historically true. It's a fact. If I was there 2,000 years ago, I could have seen it. It actually happens. It's not just true for me. It's not just an opinion. This is reality. This is truth. So yeah, I'm on the right track. That's really helpful for me to remember. Um, but Jesus says, yeah, my, my words, they're pretty strong, but I've got another witness as well. And my third witness is the Father's words, by which of course he means the Bible. And have a look at verses 37 to 40. And the Father who sends me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. The, the scriptures, the Old Testament, again, is a perfect witness for Jesus to summon, because the Jews claim to believe the Old Testament. And Jesus said, look, if you just look at the Old Testament, what do you see? All sorts of, all sorts of prophecies, much more, but prophecies, for example, that one day a man will come who will crush Satan's head. He will be a Jew. He will be born of the tribe of Judah. In fact, he will be a descendant of King David. 
He will be born in Bethlehem to a virgin, and there will be during the Roman Empire. You will be crucified for sins. You will be raised to life again. You will be given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he will establish a kingdom that will bless every nation on the planet. And the Jews, they should have seen that in the Old Testament and came to Jesus. Now, today, it's, um, you can't use the, the arguments so straightforwardly for people who aren't Jews, because they, they would say, wow, interesting predictions, aren't they? All those things that the Old Testament says, they're very interesting. Very interested in people like Nostradamus, he predicts the future, that American man who's already predicted the end of the world loads of times. Amazing. Very interesting. But I don't know whether it's true. Just the Old Testament in itself. Now imagine you told your friends about the New Testament. You told them, well, do you know, Jesus was born to a virgin in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And he was crucified, but he rose to life again. Wow, what an interesting story. Very interesting. But I don't know what it means. I don't know whether it's true. But when you take the Old and the New Testament and you put them together, the whole thing, suddenly, it has to be true. How could, how could all the Old Testament prophets have known what Jesus would do unless God had told them? There's no way they could have known. So the New Testament proves that the Old Testament is true. And if the Old Testament is true, then that proves the New Testament is true because God has done both of them. So the whole Bible is a powerful witness to Jesus. It's not just a circular argument. They're not saying, believe Jesus because the Bible says so. Why believe the Bible? Because Jesus says so. Well, why believe Jesus because the Bible says so. Why believe because Jesus? It's not like that. No, it's Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament. Proves it must be God who is the author of the whole thing. And, and that points to Jesus as the third witness. So that means the Bible is... 100% true, but also really, really importantly, it shows us the Bible is complete. Because everything the Old Testament prophesies is fulfilled in Jesus. He's already come, and the witness to him is there in the New Testament. And that is really, really important to remember in our evangelism, that the Bible is complete. I mean, imagine, I don't know how many of you have got Mormon friends. Um, I wish I had a Mormon friend. Um, but I can imagine a Mormon friend might argue um, something like this. Yeah. You've got your Bible, your old model, your old proton, you know, it's a bit worn out. Yeah. I've got the latest edition, yeah, the, new, the new Mercedes. Come and join me with my Mercedes. Yeah? I stick with the old version. But I could tell my, my Mormon friend, actually, no, no, that you can't compare it to two, two cars. No, a much better uh, representation uh, or metaphor is a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, imagine when you've got your little boy playing uh, with his jigsaw set. And uh, he wakes up early in the morning and he shakes all the pieces out and uh, he spends all morning putting them together until he's finished. And he's really proud of himself. You can see the whole picture complete. And he's just uh, admiring that when there's a knock on the door and he uh, goes to answer it. Oh, it's his friend. His friends come round. And his friend says, I found it. I found it. I found it. What have you found? I found, I found the last piece for your jigsaw puzzle. I mean the last piece, I finished it. No, 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 here's the last piece. It fits. Is it really? Let's, let's have a look. And so they go into the, into the house, and, and there's, no, there's nowhere for it to fit, but there's a friend really insists, let's go in there somewhere. My Book of Mormon must fit with your the Old Testament and New Testament. So they take out some pieces and rearrange it, try and, try and fit it in, but it just doesn't seem to fit anywhere. And eventually, what, 
What's the little boy going to think about that puzzle piece? What would you think? It doesn't belong there. Thank you, Lynn. Two geniuses in the room. It doesn't belong. It must have come from somewhere else. It has no place in my puzzle because my puzzle is complete. Yeah? So, I mean, I've got my, my Moses puzzle piece and my, my Isaiah puzzle piece, and they fit together perfectly. And then and I'm with Jeremiah and Daniel, and they all fit together perfectly, and you've got Jesus in the middle. The whole picture is complete. Absolutely perfect. I don't need your, your puzzle piece to complete my puzzle. And so, the Mormon friend would, would have to think, well, what's more likely then? Is it that, that your, all your prophets are wrong? Or is it that my puzzle piece is wrong? Because they can't both be true. Either all the prophets are wrong together, or Joseph Smith, the last prophet, isn't actually the last prophet. Maybe he's, maybe he's wrong. Yeah? I think that could be a really useful thing. If, if you ever come across any, any Mormons in Malaysia, then it will be useful to bear that argument in mind. Um, but it's not just useful for evangelism. Uh, it's also really important, I think, for uh, for us as, as a church here uh, in Slack, where we take the Bible so seriously, uh, which is a really good thing to do. Um, but there's a warning for us, as already mentioned uh, in the service, that it is possible, like the Jews here, to take the Bible so, so seriously that you forget that it points to Jesus. Um, this is a, a metaphor used by a man called Martin Luther. He says um, that the scriptures are the manger that cradles the infant Christ. So imagine your nativity scene. It's Christmas time. The angels are singing in the sky. And, and the shepherds, uh, what, what they, they're watching their flocks at night, and then they think, no, let's go down and it's Bethlehem and see, uh, see, see this new child has been born. So they rush into the village, and then they'll come galloping on their camels. There's the wise men from the east galloping into, into Jerusalem and then down to Bethlehem. And they all come into the stable, and they rush up to, to the manger, and they throw their, their gifts on the floor, and they, they bow down by the manger. And then what do they do? Well, they take out, take out their tape measure, and they start to measure the dimensions of, of the manger. Um, and then one gets on maybe a magnifying glass and starts tapping the wood. Yeah, good quality analog wood there in Syria, very good. And then you've got someone with uh, his etcher sketch and just taking diagrams so he can make his own manger when he gets back. But you've missed the point. You're not here to study the manger for the sake of the manger. The manger is here so you can know Jesus. And that is why it's so important if we're going to be leading Bible studies or doing the crash or Sunday school or youth group or whatever it is, or preaching, that we understand how the whole Bible teaches us about Jesus. That's, that's why the Bible overview course is so important to do. And I'm sure Andrew will talk more about that later in the service because he has done in the previous two. And uh, so you've got to know how the Bible points to Jesus. And then, through Bible studies, we can find life in Jesus. Let me read you this quote from Don Carson, one of my favourite theologians. He says, Jesus insists that there is nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures if one fails to discern their true contents and purpose. Jesus Christ is the one to whom the Father has granted the right to have life in himself and to impart it to others. And so, uh, and this reminds me of when uh, we're preaching at my college in London, we have 
on the lectern a big sign, and it's quite distracting actually when you're trying to preach. You've got this sign uh, looking at the same to you. Uh, the words on it are, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And it's always a reminder when we're preaching, yeah, I'm not interested in just your Bible knowledge, I want to see Jesus from the Bible. So it's really helpful in evangelism and discipleship. So let's just pause there and then summarise the argument so far. So, um, first witness, John the Baptist. Second, Jesus' great miracles. Third, the Father's word. All of these testify to Jesus that he is indeed the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. I was, I was sharing this with a man in London on the Christianity Explored course um, a few months ago. And, uh, and he said to me, can't be, can't be. It sounds so black and white. What you've described, it just sounds so obvious. It sounds so clear. But it can't be. There must be something. What are you not telling me?